0: Welcome to the Defend the North podcast. I'm your co-host, Dana Eisfeld. I'm joined again for a third time by my friend and neighbor, Tyler Saxey, And tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the Twins and Brewers. But before we do that, Tyler, so the number 31 is very important to both of us, considering the weekends that we both had um, with college football. Any idea the the tie between those two numbers?
1: 31... Ah, yes. The, the Gophers were 31-point favorites over Bowling Green.
0: The Gophers were 31-point favorites over Bowling Green and got knocked off 14-10 to 10 at the bank. As you said, I heard the Boo Birds calling at the bank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that was in the first half.
0: <laughs> uh. Okay, and you know, probably the worst loss. Um, and definitely in the PJ Fleck era, it, going back, I was looking at the worst losses in Gophers history today and we played South Dakota in 2010, you know, and, um, there were no, here's the thing about FBS versus FCS. There's no betting lines. So, but they did knock us off. Also Bowling Green knocked us off in 2007 when they were 14 and a half point underdogs in the first game in the Tim Brewster era. And man, that game at the bank over the weekend was pretty atrocious, especially <laughs> especially the passing game for the Gophers.
1: That that was ugly. But unfortunately, the other thirty one came to me, which was how many points Notre Dame rattled off in the fourth quarter after Wisconsin went up thirteen to ten.
0: That's right, and that's why I needed to do this wellness check just to make sure things are <laughs> things are, things, are okay, things are okay in the Saxy household because it was thirteen to ten,
1: right? It was, and when they. Had they gotten a touchdown there, it'd have felt better. But then, even with the field goal, up thirteen ten, and with Cohn out, and Notre Dame was to their third string quarterback at that point, I was like, if if you just made them drive the field, you could maybe have to force another tono- turnover or something like that. Like I thought we were in like solid shape at thirteen ten early in the fourth, but the, the kickoff return changed the whole thing. I mean, you could, yeah, a couple pick sixes late at the end, but like finally like struggling through the whole game and then finally getting a couple things together and taking the lead 13 10 and then your defense is locked in and then eh, let's just let him run the kickoff back 96 yards I'm like if only we'd gotten a touchback there who knows <laughs> who knows how that game unfolds but that was a pretty uh that was the gut punch there was the kickoff return from there it's like well now we have to actually do something with the ball and score and good luck with that
0: yeah well good luck with that the rest of the season i can tell you this tyler like as i'm drowning in sorrow as my 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 poor gopher's are succumbing to the um I don't even know what the mascot is for Bowling Green but the Falcon. only thing the, the Bowling Green Falcons like it, but the only thing that kept me alive on Saturday was the fact that I got to see that fourth quarter in Chicago as, <laughs> as Wisconsin squandered away that 13 to 10 lead and gave up like 31 points in one quarter good job
1: <laughs> that was that was incredible
0: So, you know, we've talked um, about the Bucks and Timberwolves, and then we moved on in our second podcast to the the Badgers and the Gophers. And, and, you know, as the Brewers are going into their fourth postseason in a row, um, who the hell would have imagined that? Um, Tonight, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Brewers and Twins. And so as our intro to that topic, um, before we jump in, I, I wanted to, you know, the first conversation that I ever had with you, Tyler you know we, we did our pleasantries hey neighbor how you do how you doing good good how you doing that kind of stuff before you know it we're talking about what are the top 5 stadiums in baseball and so as we compare the brewers and the twins i remember you saying something to me that night and you know you've been to how many stadiums now
1: i think it's it's either 23 or 24 of the current mlb stadiums like Seattle, and like it's Seattle's the only one in there where I've taken a tour but not been to a game. So somewhere in that neighborhood.
0: Of those 24 stadiums that you've been in, I remember you saying that Target Field was maybe a fringe top five stadium. Like It might be your fifth, and if not, it's it's close to being your fifth. So what are your top five stadiums?
1: Yeah, I had to revisit that after our discussion because like I hadn't thought about it in quite a while. Um, it'd been a while since I'd actually gone through that exercise. So I would put target field at five. Um, just, it's a beautiful stadium and the setting is perfect. I'm a sucker for downtown ballparks. So that certainly helps. Um, they just did a great job with that property. Um, four, I will go with San Francisco whatever telecom it's called now it's fifth one or whatever it's been named after <laughs> pack bell at whatever it is um that another great setting on the water um beautiful park um three i would say three is camden yards um that's started it all started the whole revolution so basically everything post Wrigley Fenway and Dodger Stadium um, all started with Camden Yards um, and it's still that that's held up really well over the years Um, two is Fenway and one um, is Pittsburgh
0: and that did not surprise me but it also surprised me so just a minute on our 30 seconds on why Pittsburgh is your number one stadium
1: uh, Pittsburgh was just, the setting is so cool with the bridges and stuff in the background. Um, like San Francisco, you can see the bridge if you sit over on the very top of like the first base side, um, and can kind of take that in, but you got the water out there in McCovey's Cove and stuff. Uh, but you kind of have to move around a little bit to see some of that during a game. Pittsburgh, if you're like anywhere behind home plate, um, down the lines, like you you just see the whole setting with the yellow bridges back there, the Clemente bridge, um, all of that stuff there. Uh, it's a smaller park, so it's got that intimate feel um, that some of the other newer ones have as well, uh, but that was kind of nice about it. But just that overall setting, the it's kind of a limestone finish on the outside too, like Target Field has on the one side, um, adds the aesthetics on the outside, uh, and just overall experience was really good, like fantastic food um, throughout the ballpark, and from local things in Pittsburgh um, that had stands there and stuff like that. So it's just kind of the setting of great spot to just sit and take in a game and where the, the old argument that baseball takes too long doesn't really come into play. Cause it's like, who cares?
0: Yeah. Well, good view, good food. And with baseball in the background, as ambiance. Um, yeah, the, the, the pirates haven't done much. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <a fact>.
1: <laughs> they haven't so, done much to help with the park. <laughs>
0: so, um, Two thousand one, right? American Family Field has it always been named that? I don't think so.
1: No, it was Miller Park until this season.
0: Yeah, I, I was. I googled that today, and I'm like,
1: eh, that doesn't look right. It Doesn't look right, and it doesn't come off the. Uh, it doesn't slip off the tongue really easily. The AmFam Field, like, eh. and being the Brewers, like, it's supposed to be Miller.
0: <laughs> so, granted, you're a homer. You're pretty good about giving us objective takes. What's your take on on AmFam
1: Field? I think it's, it's excellent in the utilitarian way. Um, so. I love downtown ballparks. I'd always prefer those, but completely understand why it didn't work in Milwaukee. There wasn't really a great site for it downtown, and you, you need giant parking lots for people to come tailgate, because that that's what you do um, at a Brewer game. So it works really well for that, kind of being out a little ways, you know, short ride from downtown, um, down 94, kind of its, its own concrete island um, for tailgating around it, Um it's not the most beautiful park on the outside, considering the era it was—the uh, era in which it was built. Like a lot of other really nice-looking parks came up. Like the the home plate side is nice, but if you come in from the east, on, like the outfield side, it like looks looks like a warehouse <laughs> almost. And then inside is nice. Um, the I think it's over the years it started to lack the ability to walk around and take in views from different spots um, like you can target fields got a few nice spots where you can walk around on different levels and kind of just stand behind the seats and watch um, Miller Park used to have some of that in center field that, that kind of took that away for some other seating um, and now there's like one spot way up high down the third or down the first base corner a right field corner um, where you can kind of stand and watch but other than that it's kind of like sit in your seat Um, which is another thing I downgrade him for. I like the ability to be able to walk around a park and you know, typically would stay in my seat for like four innings and then kind of journey around.
0: So where does AmFam Field, working on that, I'm just like (laughs) AmFam Field, where does that in your 23 or 24 stadiums, what's your ranking?
1: It's probably around 14, somewhere in there. It's in the middle.
0: Okay, so... We've got a better stadium than you do. That you do. Little newer too, a little newer. But I think the you know one of the things that when the Twins um, ownership and I guess the architect group that was putting up the stadium they went around like basically to all the stadiums that had been built since '94 when Camden Yards opened and like studied like what works here, what works well, and you know from the downtown you know um, you know the, the buildings in downtown and in, in, in the outfield to those spaces. And creating you something unique, so the limestone on the outside, kind of that shimmer, you know, the the net that waves with the wind as you come into the main entrance, and you know, it. Talking about views from when you enter the park, if you're in one of the skyways, like going to a Timberwolves game at Target Center, and you look west and you see kind of Target Field, and it has like that bow in the in in the stadium, and then you know you see the limestone and you see the. The, the shimmer net, and there is something special about it. Um, I the one thing I don't like about Target Field is that it feels like a nine acre park built in six acres.
1: <laughs> they did it, is the I, I believe it's the smallest footprint of any MLB stadium,
0: which makes every seat good, but it also makes every seat tight. Yeah, and you know, like you said, like it, it's nice after the dome to have to be able to move to something like, um, target field I think is is something that I think Twins fan as you can see in the attendance numbers, they almost doubled from '09 to 2010 even though we'd had some winning teams um, and speaking of baseball on the field so our first segment tonight we wanted this just as we talk about the Twins and Brewers not much of a rivalry not a lot going down you know the the, the Brewers were in the AL East and then they were in the NL Central they've been in three divisions in the last 30 years yes right Yep. The AL East, the NL Central, and the, on
1: I think there were like three or four years in the AL Central before the switch to the National League, if I'm recalling that correctly.
0: Yeah. Okay. We have AL East until 93, the AL Central until 96, yep. 97, and then the NL Central ever since then. Yeah. Um, good, good old Bud, um, helping them, them change <laughs> leagues. Yes. And it's, it's hard as, as a baseball fan, right? When you think of a team like in a league for that many years it's hard. it 's hard it it took me and you know I was a kid at the time well i wasn 't much of a kid, I was in my teens, but to undo the sense that like Milwaukee was no longer an american league team that 's hard
1: yeah it was a, it was it was definitely an interesting switch and then to start playing the you know, now all of a sudden, you never saw the Cardinals except the World Series, and now you're playing the Cardinals all the time, playing the Cubs all the time. Um, that was instead of the White Sox, um, that was definitely a a big switch. It, it was good from a rivalry perspective, I think. Like you know, like switching from the White Sox to the Cubs was helpful from a rivalry perspective, and then getting the Cardinals in. I mean, there's still there's still people who won't drink Budweiser products because of the '82 World Series. Um, <laughs> they're sticking with Miller, still bitter over that. Um, lost to St. Louis, so getting them in the same division was kind of fun. So all in all, like
0: moving from the AL East to the AL Central to the NL Central has been, over time, it, it it's been something that you think that has actually fostered um, better fandom in Milwaukee.
1: Oh yeah, I think so. And then like even the you know Cubs fans that come up, make the short drive to the games at. That- Miller now AmFam like that was always a point of contention of like how do we stop them from buying all the tickets <laughs> so it's not all Cub fans coming up and then so that becomes kind of the big thing of it's like half and half it's almost like an old it's almost like an old Gopher Badger football game at the Metrodome where it's like one deck is lower deck is Brewers upper deck is all Cubs fans who made the trip um kind of fun that way
0: well I suppose the north side of Chicago to uh Milwaukee is le- less than two hours right
1: Yeah. And I think that's part of the kind of the trade-off too of like, there's the natural Wisconsin-Minnesota rivalry, but for Milwaukee, Chicago is a big, big, big deal going up against Chicago for anything because they're the much, the much bigger brother, just, you know, 90 minutes at most South. So if Chicago is the
0: big brother to Milwaukee and Wisconsin at large, what does that make Minnesota? The twin? The cousin. (laughs) I kind of think we're like fraternal twins. That could be like, I'm not identical, so. you know. Yeah, like, that's there's probably enough. why we're on. That's probably why we're on round three of this podcast.
1: That's probably true.
0: Yeah. All right, fraternal brother. Um, <laughs> so, okay, um, we're we're gonna go back. You know, I, I guess we have to go back to the early '80s to get any relevance pre 2008 <laughs> for the Brewers. So we're gonna do that, and, and, and I think the Twins also. You know, there's a lot to talk about um, as they came over from Washington, but really. You know, we're going to focus a little bit, you know, starting with that World Series title in 87. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, who's your favorite brewer of all time?
1: Hmm. I would say, ultimately, it has to be Robin Yount. Um, He gets the longevity, loyalty factor for playing 20, coming to the majors at age 18 and playing his whole 20 years with Milwaukee. Um, He is associated with every, like you said, there weren't a lot of moments that mattered, but all the ones that did, he was pretty much associated with them um, in 82 when they actually made the World Series. Um, that actually, the AL East came down to the very last game. It was the Brewers against the Orioles just to see who got the got the division title and went to the playoffs. And um, he homered in his first two at-bats off Jim Palmer um, in that game. So kind of delivered the division title on his own there. He hit... He had two four hit games and hit over 400 in that World Series loss. Um, So he was kind of the man there. And then, um, you know, Hall of Famer, 3,000 hits, and then um, only the third player to win. MVP awards at two different positions at shortstop and then at center field in '82 and '89, um, and so when you when you get on a list that only includes Hank Greenberg and Stan Musial, um, now it includes Arod. But um, at that point, he was only the third one to do it. That's a pretty good company to keep, um, and pretty much establishes you as the as as the man.
0: Yeah, to win MVP awards at two different positions and then also to lead the Brewers all time. From yeah. what I understand, mm-hmm. in games played at both positions, and by several hundred games at both positions.
1: Yeah, and to do that, shortstop and center field was kind of crazy. Like Musial and Greenberg both did it at first base, and then you know stuck in an outfield spot. Like, not to take anything away from it, it's still a great accomplishment. But shortstop and center field. Doing it was was pretty amazing, and then he was just always the he was just always the constant factor. Even like all the years after that, when they were terrible, like I remember going to the games at County Stadium, and it was always like if there was a game winning hit, it was Robin Yount. If it was, um, I mean. 87 until this year, their only no hitter was Juan Davis in 1987. And the last out was a Robin Young diving catch in center field. Like he made an absolute spectacular play to finish off a no hitter. Um, the only one in team history. So he's just kind of been the one that was could touch stuff and turn it to gold.
0: Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's kind of a no brainer. Like you could have zagged on this, but I think ultimately you made the right choice and Robin Yount, like, and, you know, that 1982 season, you know, when when they made it to the World Series, Tyler, baseball reference he estimates that he had a, a war of 10.5, which would have tied him for the 14th best of any player since the end of World War II. So if talking about irrelevance in Milwaukee and a guy that can put together that kind of season and lead them to the World Series, um, you know, I was a little surprised and maybe we'll get into this more that you know the brewers of the Molitor Yon era um weren't more productive than they were they had a couple you know that kind of like the the marino dolphins they had a couple of quick runs in the early 80s and things yeah. dried up pretty quickly from there but you know um before we get into the kind of starting to tell the um historical sequencing of our franchises the best win of all time i also and people might argue with me i don't think it's much of a Debate like it's Kirby Puckett. Yes, yeah. it's Agreed. It, and you know you, you can make the case for Rod Carew. He won seven batting titles from sixty nine to seventy eight. Harmon Killebrew hit five hundred and seventy three career home runs. Fourteen years as a twin, seven years as a Washington Senator, same franchise. But you know you know they were both. I, I don't want to call them one trick ponies. Harmon Killebrew certainly had like the one talent that overshadowed most in baseball. But Puckett. I mean, Puckett was a five tool guy, right? He batted for power, he batted for average, he could run the base pass. He played great center field. He won six gold gloves. And he had a cannon for an arm. And you know, Puckett was just he was electric. And I know his his peak was short, in part because his career was ended early. But I just I I when you when you and the fact and maybe in part, like I always have with friends of mine like this debate, like Sometimes it's hard to understand greatness if you don't see people that perform in great events. Yeah. Right? Right. And and, and, and at least Yaunt got it to the, in the 82 World Series. You know, so you were, you had an opportunity to see him there. The way that Puckett performed in 87 and, and 91 in those World Series, leading that Twins offense, and not by himself, but, I mean, he was certainly the, the fulcrum of everything we did those years. Um. You know, George Brett, the great Kansas City Royal, his peer – Um, He said this about Puckett. There are just certain people in baseball that you feel honored to have played with and against Kirby Puckett was one of those players for 12 years. Kirby played the game the way it was meant to be played with enthusiasm, with class, with an all out energy and most important with a smile on his face for Kirby baseball was a joy and it made the game fun for everyone around him too. And that's it in a nutshell, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think like I was thinking the same thing too. Like, you know, all the great moments Yount had out, outside of 82, which is really early in his career, the rest of them were all kind of like out of the limelight and Kirby did the same thing, but he did it. He did it on the bright, the bright light, under the bright lights, the big stage, like he had those same moments, but they were when it really, really mattered, like you said, in the world series, which I'm sure we're going to get to. Um But like, like game six <laughs> was, was Kirby central um, in a number of ways and, That uh, absolutely shined through there. I mean, you got to give Killer Bruce some bonus points for the root beer, but it's still not enough.
0: (laughs) Well, in a 21 year career at that, and the longevity. I think here's the thing: if Joe Mauer, I think Joe Mauer could have been the Robin Yawn of Minnesota. The problem is the you know the second half of his career, he just wasn't the same guy. Yeah. Um. And maybe, you know, that was in part because if he had the, the, the toll that playing catcher had played on his or had um, affected his body or maybe he was just more injury prone. But if his second half of his career had played out and he had been 80 to 90 percent of the guy that he had been through 2000, say, seven or eight, we might be having a different conversation here. Oh, know, for sure. Um, especially when you consider how well he played um, defensively as catcher, but not the case, not the case. So, you know, going back then to those early eighties brewers, you know, I, I, I used to open my, my tops baseball cards and I, I wasn't, give me a break. Like we were toddlers when the brewers were relevant in the 80s, but you know, Molitor was there through 92 and Yount mm-hmm. was there through his retirement. And I used to open up my tops baseball cards. And if I got a brewer, I'm like, man, I hope it's Yon. I hope it's Molitor. <laughs> Cause then you could turn it on the backside and it's like, you know, 324 with 208 hits. And like, like there was nothing else about the brewers that excited me. Yeah. Um, and those were the guys that helped lead that team. So talk to me a little bit about those um, 80. Was it two playoff appearances in three years?
1: It was back to back. It was 81. 81 was the shortened season. And I think they were, because I think the record was like 62 and 47 or something. But they they won the division and got to the, um, and lost the, lost the series there. And then '82, they came back and had the really good year um, in the full season. So it was back to back. But they had through the late '70s, they would had winning records. I mean, they would like a five or six year stretch from the late '70s up to '82, where they were they were a pretty good ball club, and and a fun one to watch too. I mean, I've, I've seen the documentaries and DVDs and stuff they put out on you know Harvey's Wall Bangers from the manager Harvey Keen and and just a fun team at that era of like you know kind of the precursor to the to the bomba squad and here here in the twin cities i was just like hammer away guys launching bombs and stuff back then and you cecil cooper on that team and gorman thomas and all those guys in addition to yount and molitor um that were just a lot of fun to watch and a lot of offense uh and then you have some characters in there on the pitching staff with pete vukovic being um in there Um uh, he won the Cy Young in 82. Um, then you had Raleigh Fingers in there, um, which, when I mean, you're talking about a different era of baseball, you had Raleigh Fingers winning the AL MVP and Cy Young as a closer. <laughs> it's like... It's like, man, the game was a little bit different then. Um, you're seeing that type of thing, but, um, a lot of fun to watch. And it was like, Milwaukee has always been, I mean, there's a long stretch after that where they were bad, but if you were at least decent, like, it was always a fun baseball town. County Stadium was a dump, but like, Milwaukee was, you look back at the footage and stuff, and Milwaukee was pretty crazy in 82, um, when the Brewers made the run and were in the World Series. So, um, it would have been a fun time had we not been toddlers to, to soak all that in. But, um, yeah, it was a, you know, at that point, they had the hitting and they had the pitching, um, which is kind of what then lacked after a while. I mean, they still had some hitters for a while throughout the '80s, but out and know, Molitor being two of them for sure. Uh, but then the the pitching really wasn't there for a while after that.
0: I just I was going through my baseball cards today, like I was, and I I pulled out like honestly like a couple of months ago because like the baseball card revolution prices are like through the roof. I have a I have a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card that if it's in pristine condition is worth nine thousand mine's not like you know i obviously probably had a lot of my you know eight year old finger oil on it but um it's kind of and i was looking but i got to my my brewers page and um there was a lot of offense and it was kind of an interesting combination of like guys that hit like that could knock in that you know could extra base hits could bat for average and then a guy like Deer that hit, had like two hundred strikeouts a year batted two oh four and hit forty home runs and I'm like, why wasn't he born thirty years later? It'd be
1: I know. Yeah. Rob Deer Rob Deer was exactly that. he like Rob Deer's your typical modern day slugger of just up there hacking away and striking out an insane amount of times back in the day. Back then, um, uh, then Greg Vaughn was in there too. He was a little bit better of a contact hitter, but he was their main power source for quite a few years there. In the 90s, it was like Vaughn's Valley out in left field. There was always like a hand painted sign out in left field at County Stadium, um, for Greg Vaughn out there because he was the, the lone power source for a while at that era. But yeah, they had, they had some sluggers in there, but, um, you know, Teddy Higuera was a good pitcher, but pretty injury prone. Um, I think he's still probably their all time war leader as a pitch starting pitcher, but, Um, kind of a could have been situation given all the arm problems he had.
0: So, you know, we talked a lot about, about a lot about the, um, the guys that helped Milwaukee kind of get on the map as a baseball town, because prior to the early eighties, like, you know, they came over what they were, the Seattle pilots for a year, refresh me on the, and then they came in Milwaukee in 1969.
1: Yeah, I think 69 they started as the pilots, and then in 70 they were in Milwaukee as the Brewers.
0: So, you know, you're looking at a decade plus of irrelevance, and, you know, Yaunt helped to put you on the map, and then Molitor, you know, and and Molitor being, you know, a a Creighton-Durham, you know, high school alum and played at the University of Minnesota, helped lead the Gophers to the 1977 College World Series. By the way, my high school baseball coach, I should say our high school baseball coach at Slayton, Murray County Central, was a college roommate of Terry Belter or of, of Paul Molitor. Um, and he, 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 um, they roomed together in fact, and he actually had his own minor league career um, from 78 to 1980. And he ended up uh, making it to double a. And then I think he ended up with a knee injury. Um, so I've always had kind of a special place for, for Paul Molitor. You know, he had a big role in that, in in the Brewers emergence in the late seventies and early eighties. And then, you know, he continues to play for you for another decade. And then he leaves, in 92 and joins you know i watched his career um, paul molitor's career highlights on youtube yesterday half of them are the blue jays and the twins
1: that seems unfair <laughs> it probably is i mean he hit three what 320 hitter i think in all his years with the brewers i mean yount only hit 285 but yount was a you know, Yount was a high war guy on defense too, so he kind of brought both sides to the table. But, I mean, it was, all, yeah, my entire childhood, like the whole 80s and into those early 90s, like it was, the two of them were inseparable. It was always Batman and Robin um and, you, and the kid and the igniter um kind of together like those those two they, they were the franchise in its entirety i mean sometimes jim gantner got thrown in there as the third one but that was more because he was like a local product not because <laughs> not he was a great player um just kind of like the local legend that was thrown in there and it was a long time brewer so it was like the three of them but in reality like it was yount and molitor for for all those all those times and then you know, by the time you know, Yount gets the credit for the loyalty, but you also couldn't blame Paul, and I think the majority of fans, after watching the Brewers struggle through the rest of the 80s and then have one little flash in the pan in 92 where they couldn't quite catch the Blue Jays, um, that was an interesting team. But... At that point, I was like, "Yeah, go get a ring, Paul. <laughs> nobody's gonna be nobody's gonna be grudgy. That it wasn't like fire leaving to go somewhere else after all the drama or whatever. It was like, all right, Paul's Paul's been doing this for 14 years or 15 years or whatever. Like, go ahead, go go find a ring somewhere.
0: It felt a little bit like KG going to Boston because I mean. He was a really good player, and he had been loyal to the franchise. He had been good about everything that he had done while he was at the franchise. And when he went to the new team, it wasn't that he was just like an old guy chasing a ring. Molitor contributed. Like, Molitor had had a hell of a World Series in 93 against the um, Phillies, I believe. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and I think Milwaukee – I'm still happy that KG got his ring in Boston. And I'm sure that you are that Molitor got his ring in Toronto. Absolutely. How do you feel about that 3000 hit in MetroDome?
1: Yeah, why not? <laughs> it was type of actually one of the only sporting things I regret of like not going was Robin Yount's 3000 hit um, cuz we were I want to say that was like 93ish cuz I I don't think it was the pennant race year of 92. I think it was the next year when he hit 3000. And so like we, he was close. He was, like, one hit away, and, like, my dad was like, should we go? I'm like, yeah, we probably should, and then for whatever reason, we were like, "Yeah," decide not to go that night and then listened on the radio, and he got it, and I was like, ah, oh, that would have been cool. But, yeah, I mean, Molitor, he'd done his time. <laughs> he'd done his time with the brewers that were going nowhere, so it'd totally, you know, cool for him to do that elsewhere.
0: So you guys chased the, um, the Blue Jays in that 92 pennant race in the AL East and came up a little bit short. From there, things got ugly. Give us your 30-minute, 30-second to a minute recap on why couldn't Milwaukee, why was it a 16-year rebuild?
1: Yeah, and it was interesting because that was a really quick drop-off from 92, and like 92 might have suggested like maybe there's something here because he had Pat Listash as a rookie of the year. Like, oh, this is kind of interesting. They were, Phil Gardner had just taken over as manager and they were stealing bases like crazy. That's all they did. They didn't have a whole lot of boppers. It was like, get on base, run. Daryl Hamilton, I think, was on that team too. It was like, get on base, steal, um, do our thing. And then the pitching was like, Cal Eldred too, it was like a flash in the pan of like, we've got a young, like something that looks like an ace here with Cal Eldred and then, Next year, all those guys just kind of fell off the cliff um but then you know the yeah, the quick synopsis of what happened after that i mean they were just they weren't in a position to spend a whole lot of money um and you know other teams started to spend a lot more in that era uh and then also, i mean just Bud Selig did a lot of good things for the franchise um but you know, at that point, it didn't even really feel like they were trying all that much. <laughs> I mean, like they weren't – you'd make one free agent signing every offseason, and it was a 38-year-old guy like, oh, Franklin Stubbs is still able to swing a bat. Like, let's bring him in at the tail end of his career. Um, so it was a lot of, like, trying to piece something together, but it was clearly going nowhere, and they weren't really investing either in the farm system or in free agency at that point. And it, it at times even felt like – Bud's trying to make the case that the small market team can't do do anything um, and with a bigger picture in mind for all of baseball.
0: Well, there was one thing in 2001 that Bud Selig was trying really hard at, and that was trying to steal the Minnesota Twins fan
1: base. Indeed. Contraction talk.
0: And granted, there had been, you know, eight, seven, eight, even after those two World Series, you know, almost a full decade of incompetence in the Twin Cities, but... Do you really think that Twins fans would turn their attention to Milwaukee? <laughs> F, no. F no. <laughs> we would have either become agnostic baseball fans, or I could see us maybe St. Louis, maybe Colorado, and maybe a small contingent Mil- to Milwaukee. But like, uh uh-uh. uh. Like, yeah. Sorry, sorry, bud. The,
1: uti- the entire idea of contraction itself was just like ridiculous. Like, there's like eight obvious things you could do to try to improve the balance across baseball and make this more palatable and better for the small market teams, um, rather than actually getting rid of one or two. I mean, that was ridiculous on its face. Like at, at that stage too, thinking of a major sports league, looking at reducing teams at that era, it's like, you just added the Marlins and the Rockies <laughs> and now you're going <laughs> to, and now we're going to take a long-standing team away. Like what? I, yeah, exactly. I don't know what actually, What was going on there other than, other than, let's, other than, let's get new stadiums built.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what it was about. It was about putting pressure on Montreal and Minneapolis, St. Paul to, you know, from Olympic Stadium and the Metrodome to get something new put up. And Montreal wouldn't pony up those damn Canadians. And so they end up in, in, in Washington as the Nationals. The Twins, however, like, you know, every year in the legislature, you know, the one thing about Minnesota is that while we, Consider ourselves to be kind of bullies of the upper midwest, um I mean outside of Chicago, of course, um like we have a really tender underbelly and an underdog complex and there and there's I talked to my dad about this over and when the u s bank stadium and all the financing you know through the electronic pull tabs was going through to to to, to put that that stadium together and I'm just like you know teachers and you know roads and like all these things we could be doing with this money, and he just said to me, "Look, son we have four professional sports teams and that's what we're going to have. And we're not going to let one of them go. Now we have five and I'd count six with the links. Um, And, but his point was like, we really value professional sports as a signal to the country that our town matters with our 17 fortune 500 companies and our strong economy. And it's like, we're not going to let that happen. And so we're not going to let Montreal, might let the expos go, but like the twins are going to get a stadium built, even if it takes seven years of wrangling in the legislature to get the funding through. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was nothing more than a, um, almost a blackmail, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That's, that's probably the right term for it. Um, and there's something to that too, like you said. I think there's that that element of being big league and being perceived that way. And I, mean, I think that's even looking back after the Bucks won the title, I kind of thought thought that too of like you know it was always. The the Bucks were semi relevant in the eighties, and then went through their long dry spell. The Brewers were terrible for most of that time period, but like it was still, we were still big leagues. Like you go down to a Brewer game, and County Stadium was a dump, and like <laughs> there were like very few redeeming qualities about that place, but like. That's where we went. That's where there was Major League Baseball. And, like, the Brewers might be terrible, but you could go pick who you wanted to go see that was visiting and other stuff like that. And, like, you were still still at least big leagues. So, like, I can see that sentiment as well of, like, can't lose that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I think that in Minnesota, one of the unique dynamics is you guys have the Milwaukee Bucks and you have the Milwaukee Brewers and the Green Bay Packers and no hockey team which still befuddles me, considering hockey is very popular in Wisconsin, um, as evidenced by the UW um, men's and women's hockey teams, and their successes over the years. But in Minnesota, Kelvin Griffith moves the team from Washington, the Washington Senators in 1960, and he knows that there's this longstanding contention between Minneapolis and St. Paul. And so he decides to build the stadium. I mean, the stadium had been built as a triple A Stadium that could be expanded to a major league um standards, right? Like that was kind of the intention was, hey, we got the triple A team and we can lure you in. But he called it the Minnesota Twins, so that there wasn't that contention between the two competing cities, which then led, you know, to the Minnesota Vikings and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And so there is something like I don't know. I feel and I know that Wisconsin fans feel a deep connection to the Bucks, even if you're from Oshkosh or if you're from Eau Claire, or if you're from the, you know, Bayfield, for that matter. Sure. But it it's still called Milwaukee. It's not called the Wisconsin Bucks. And so I yeah. think there's something about that, about in terms of... Um...
1: No, it's true. I mean, I like it, it gave us the TC logo, which I love. Like the, the twins going back to the TC and the hat instead of the underlined M was like a brilliant move. I love that. The old school twin stuff is really cool. So the, the TC logo, which started back then, because like, well, we don't want to don't want to offend St. Paul by having an M on there. So let's go with a TC for twin cities. Like worked out in the end.
0: I think St. Paul, you know, given, I think they're feeling a little bit better about themselves with the wild, the saints, and now Minnesota United, like it's a pretty decent sports town.
1: It is. Yeah. Like in the wild, I think was a big deal. Like getting that in St. Paul kind of changed the whole dynamic downtown of having something to do there during the season two, instead of, if you're splitting nights with the wolves over in minneapolis like it's definitely a good move
0: well you got that west that west seventh kind of corridor with the Excel energy center and now over in lower town you got all those bars in the park and you've got chs field yeah and, you know and now like they're trying to do something around selling i'm not quite sure like
1: where that's gonna <laughs> land yeah i'm not sure either right now it's just making it a pain to leave a loon's game but hopefully it's <laughs> become something <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I've got some tricks. I've got some 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 hot takes on how to get out of there more quickly. If if you want to hear them off the pod, um, we're a little off track here. Um, so we get you know with with, with Milwaukee, you know, we get that long dry spell. Um, but then you know you get into the the late two thousands, and you get a couple of playoff teams. And I was looking today, and this was the thing that the thing that jumped out to me. And I'm going to let you speak to this, Tyler, is the number of guys that like were productive players. And all stars on those on that was it? 08 and two thousand eleven teams that made it to the playoffs.
1: Yeah, they were. They really had some stacked lineups um, those years. Those were some fun teams to watch, and I think it it spoke to one. They finally had gotten the right. You know, they had a lot of high draft picks. They finally hit on some of those. So you had um, the core that came up. Um, starting in 05, um, you've got Prince Fielder at first, Ricky Weeks at second, JJ Hardy at short, Ryan Braun, who's eventually coming, um, at third base a couple years later, I think in 07, he came up, um, first, um, but. You sort of saw it building there and then um it's also the uh, ownership change when the Ligs finally sold to Mark Adonazio in 04 I think so he took over for the 05 season um so right when those guys started to hit and it's like oh we might have something in a few years and then they were actually willing to actually start investing as well so they started making some decent free agent moves to add on to that core um as we got into like 07 08 um and, beyond. and so the, you know, the Sabathia trade at the deadline in 08, like, all right, we're going to actually, we got a chance at the wild card. Let's go for this thing. Um, that was a, that was a great move. Um, and then, you know, getting Grinky after that to come over, um, for a multi-year deal, um, was, was a nice one as well. Um, that then kind of propelled them to 11, but they had a lot of nice pieces there. You throw in Jason Kendall at catcher, um, unieski Betancourt at short um, kind of filled in a bit there and was kind of a utility player that could go anywhere. Um, they added quite a few pieces there during that time. But um I think the, the biggest thing about that was it was really fun to see the core come up through the system and kind of see that excitement build of like people actually wanted to go to the minor league, go to single A ball in Beloit of all places, which was like a glorified rec league softball diamond um, <laughs> in Beloit. But at that time, the snappers were... A ball for the, for the Brewers. It's like, oh, let's go watch Prince Fielder and, and that type of thing. And then seeing that core group all come up together and you can throw Corey Hart in there too, um, who came up through the system, um, with them. And it's like to have the, the bulk of the lineup all come up together at the same time as young kids. Um, and, and you saw that have a really big difference actually just in the excitement level and the fan base. Um, so, you know, 08, 09, you start going to games and like the parking lot was full of 20 somethings. You know, you're worried about the baseball crowd starting to trend older and older, um, which it kind of continues to do. But, you know, at that point with all the young kids for the Brewers is like, you know, mid twenties men and women, most of the women wearing JJ Hardy Jersey shirts, uh, (laughs) at the time that must've helped somehow that has to help somehow with the marketing, um, his smile or something. But, um, you know, 20-somethings out there tailgating and, you know, playing beanbag toss two hours before a Brewer game and, you know, packed houses and stuff like that. That was that was a, that was a good era for that. And I think, um, you know, 08 was taking the plunge and making the CC Sabathia trade. He was absolutely lights out, carried him to the finish and actually got him to the wild card. Um, that, that in itself was awesome. I think in 08 it was like... Oh, well, we made the playoffs. This is fantastic. And we kinda of ran into the Phillies buzzsaw in the playoffs that year and got knocked out in four games. But, you know, whatever. We made the playoffs, which is the first time in since eighty two. Um, you know, that was a huge deal. Um, and then I would say eleven was the eleven's probably the only one that I can look back on like that one actually hurt, like, as a Brewer fan. Like they won the division that year by six games over St. Louis and then met up with St. Louis in the N L C S and just lost in six, but it was just an ugly series. Like, the pitching all went south. Grinky had a terrible start. Um, the arms that got them there that year, Randy Wolfe, um, was in that rotation. Um, guys that had been good all season, Sean Markham, he had a terrible start that series. Um, guys that were pretty solid down the stretch, and then that just kind of imploded, and it was like, kind of felt they were the better team that year, and then for it to be the the dreaded Cardinals again, be the one that knocked us out and David freeze going nuts out of nowhere. Um, that one kind of hurt, but at least we were relevant again, but oh, was awesome to be there. 11 was kind of like that one kind of hurt as a missed opportunity where like that could have been a championship team.
0: Yeah. I, you know, so two points, um, number one, like the excitement, like you look at the attendance numbers from 2003, 1.7 million, 1.8 million. And then, By you know, and they steadily increase as those young players are not just coming up through the system, but are starting to produce on the field. By 2008, you guys are at three million fans per year, um, and then you know you sustain that between 2.7 and 3.1 million through 2011. So, it it, it's pretty clear that Milwaukee is a good baseball town when there's good baseball.
1: Yeah, and it was uh that, that place was hopping too. I remember like there were a couple. Ended up going to quite a few games in that stretch, and I think especially in 11 um, when they were starting to make the run. But even in, like, May of that year, I think there was one weekend where I had a buddy who is a bachelor party. He's like, let's do a Brewer game. So I think we went down on – saturday tailgated did the saturday night game and i lived about an hour from milwaukee at that point um, but the next day my old high school so my cousin was pitching for my old high school um, and they actually got to play at miller park after the brewer game on sunday so turned around the next day and went again like oh, let's keep going and i think fielder hit two home runs that day and um, that place got rocking when they were when they were having the run and
0: then you know the the second point tyler that I think you're right in saying this. Like, I think that team definitely they had the depth offensively like that. That team was pretty loaded and the pitching staff. So, you know, I what jumped out to me when I was looking at the pitching staff of the 2011 Brewers was that all five of your starting pitchers won at least 11 games, 11, 16, 13, 17 and 13, all with the ERAs. Well, four of the five under four. And they were durable. I mean, you had guys that were pitching between 160 and 220 innings, one through five. Like, there wasn't a drop-off. And then you get into the playoffs. And here's the thing about the playoffs, especially in tight series, is that you need a guy or two that you can hang your hat on. And if Greinke, you know, and Greinke's been up and down in the postseason throughout his career. He's been brilliant or he's been really hittable. And then if Wolf's not pitching well and, you know, you can kind of see how the wheels come off in the NLCS. If you don't got the guys that can get you to the seventh inning,
1: yeah, there were guys that were like rock solid regular season pitchers for sure. Like Sean Markham was another one. He was just a he was just a bulldog who would just go out there and grind out six or seven innings somehow. And like, but yeah, if he doesn't have his stuff, he can get rocked. <laughs> and that that started to happen in the in that NLCS.
0: So following 2011, you guys have a couple of middling season through the the, the mid 20 teens. Um, then I would say you go through a two or three year mini rebuild and then, you know, the brewers have risen again, you know, through from 18 to 2021. I just saw a meme on social media last week. Um, you guys are in the playoffs now for the fourth straight year with Craig council as your, um, as your manager. So what, what's, what's, what has stuck out to you the most about this latest iteration of the brewers?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, one has been Craig Council. Like when they first made the hire, it was like, all right. I mean, he was kind of like, again, like a local Midwest guy and Wisconsin guy and like goofy batting stance and tiny little guy out there making a, making an MLB career. And Then they hire him as manager and it's like, this will be interesting, but he sure seems to know what he's doing because uh, some of these teams that have made the playoffs the last four years did not you didn't sit there in April and think, oh, this, this is going to be a team that's going to be there. Um, and especially taking the Dodgers to game seven in the NLCS and, um, in 18. It's like, that was, that was pretty wild. And that was, um, so that, that's one thing that stands out is like, that guy, he seems to be one of the better managers in baseball at this point based on what he's pieced together. Um, cause he's also done it in a couple of different ways, which I think would be point number two, um, that stands out to me is the first couple of years it was, it was bopping and then throwing together whatever you could from a pitching um, standpoint. Like Everybody's doing this kind of now, but you know, that 18 season, he was throwing you know, he, bullpen days every other day. I was like, especially as he got down the stretch run of September and into the postseason, I was like, all right, this guy's going to throw two innings, this guy's going to throw two, and we're just going to piecemeal it together an inning at a time almost uh, and then rely on our offense, and it, it worked. Um And now this year, the offense has been – absolutely horrendous for stretches of the season. And especially in the beginning of the year, like this is like this team, the pitching was good early on, but it's like that, who knows if that's going to last. And this offense is terrible. And you know, now they're up at 96 or so wins with a, with a handful to play. Um, and it's been basically pitching like who knew that between Freddie Peralta, um, <laughs> coming looking like an ace, um, you know, across the board, it's like, I didn't, I didn't want to get on board with this Brewer team in the first half of the season. I'm like, this is nice, but I don't, I don't think it can last. But now as you can look through at the second half, it's like, they've actually got the recipe to do it. Like, you've got three solid starters that can get you through a playoff series. Um, and really three of them that have been pitching like aces for most of the season. Um, you've got the seven, eight, nine set up for the bullpen. Um, that's super strong. If they get enough offense, and Yelich finds a way to hit again. It's like kind of incredible actually at this point that looking back to the beginning of the season that now we're, now we're there. So um seems to be, he can find a way to win as a manager. And now we've got kind of the, some of the pitching actually came to fruition and um, some young arms that they actually have under control for like three or four years each now, um, which is, which is pretty exciting. Um, that's sort of what stands out now is like, wow, all of a sudden we've got, three-headed monster at on the mound yeah and
0: I don't think anybody saw that coming um you this the, what I really was most impressed by when you look at at Woodruff and and Burns and, and Peralta and even Eric Lauer like you got you know four guys with sub 3.0 ERAs that have pitched um at least 113 innings and in today's league that's like not, not yeah, right. insignificant and then, your, and then you go to your bullpen right and like it's kind of lights out, like you know, Hater and Suter and and Boxberger and Williams. Like it's been, it's hard for me to like look at like old, um, you know, statistical recaps of seasons and compare it to new because like the number of innings pitched are lower, the number of wins are lower, and you know ERAs can be misleading. But when still, when you've got eight to ten pitchers between your starting rotation and your bullpen, that when you when he's out there on the mound, and you're watching as a fan on your couch at home, and you're like, "Okay, I'm confident in this guy's ability to get through the inning," that's something, right? That's something that translates, even if Yelich can't hit a fastball to save his life.
1: Yeah, and I think they've like, it feels similar to the Bucks too of the willingness to go make a couple of moves that not a lot of them, but the right ones, perhaps. Um, so the Bucks felt like they did that last year, and then the Brewers went and like. Eduardo Escobar was a mid-season pickup that was a, you know, via trade that was like, that was a fist-pumping one when I saw that. I'm like, S- that's a really, really good, sneaky good pickup to add Escobar to get some offense in that lineup down the stretch. And then um the, the Willie Adamas trade, like, at the time, that didn't seem like it was going to be something that would pay off to this degree.
0: Well, with you know, they they do have some bats, and with that, lineup of pitchers. I think, you know, if I had to predict, I think that well, who knows with this Cardinals team that doesn't seem like they're capable of losing anymore. Um, but this feels like a team that could definitely get into the NLCS and, and make some noise. And you know, once you're there and it's a tight series like it takes a couple of breaks and 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 who knows, but I'll I'll be giving you you know, I, my love cuz there's not much to cheer for uh on the other side of the state line this year. Um, so, all right, give me your 30 seconds on Brewer last 30 years of Brewer's baseball in a nutshell, 40 last 40 years,
1: last 40 years of Brewer's baseball on 30 seconds. I would say, um, long forgotten glory years. Let's go back to the early eighties and then a long stretch of absolutely nothing. Um, And then excitement from the hometown build of coming up through the minors um, was pretty awesome. And I would say since that point, from like 05 on, I feel there's been some disappointments in the playoffs, but I kind of feel like we've punched above our weight, um, given the way baseball still works. Um, No salary cap, small market, what can you actually do? Um, And I think the Twins have done a great job, obviously, of staying relevant for the most part um during that whole time frame um as another small market club but like brewers it's hard to really be disappointed with the last 10 years i'd say the last 10 years is kind of like we've punched above our weight and we've been there um and maybe we'll break through if we keep that up
0: all right and we're back and after um all that talk about Milwaukee and what the Brewers have done since the nineteen eighties, we wanted to give, as we have been doing for the last couple of podcasts, um, Minnesota some love. And I think there's a lot of parallels to draw. Even though like the twins and brewers are not big rivals and there isn't a long history of games or series between us that have been meaningful, I think, you know, as we've talked about quite a bit with the Badgers and, and Gophers and even with the Bucks and Wolves, like the blueprint is pretty similar as a Midwestern mid-market team. And, you know, we broke through. The Gophers never did, and the Wolves still haven't, but the Twins did in 1987. You know, we bring home our first World Series title in the franchise since 1924. Of course, the Washington Senators um, were the ones that won that. But this Twins team that moved from Washington to Bloomington in 1961 under the ownership of Kelvin Griffith, and... I just I, there's a couple of points I'm going to make about him later, and I need to put this out there first. I mean, Kelvin Griffith, he was the owner and the de facto GM, drafting and trading um, the Twins players that you know we're in his front office that we're going to be talking about. Um, are you aware of his history, Tyler?
1: I am aware of some of it. I wouldn't say I'm like an aficionado or an expert on it, but I've I've I, I known some of it.
0: So his dad owned the Washington Senators. He came up as a bat boy, worked his way up in the 1920s, have you? Worked his way up through the organization. In 1955, his dad passes away. Ownership is um, he had owned 52% of the team. That goes to his son, Calvin Jr., and his sister. She basically says, whatever you want to do baseball-wise, Calvin, I agree with you. So he effectively maintains control. He gets the twins moved to Bloomington. Um, In 1961, and then 17 years later, he was in Wasika, Minnesota. I believe at a Lions Club dinner, and a Minneapolis Tribune writer was in a in the audience. Um, And and he basically, this is what he said: Um, "Calvin Griffith, I'll tell you why we came to Minnesota. It was when we found out you only had 15,000 blacks here." Black people don't go to ball games, but they'll fill up a wrestling ring and put up such a chant it'll scare you to death. We came here because you've got good, hardworking white people. So, needless to say, his statue came down last summer. Yep. Um, fair, like kind of sad that it took that long. Um, so, I look Kelvin Griffith. I am not an apologist. A lot of social shortcomings. I'm not even going to call him a man of his era. I, he's just a racist. But as a as a as the owner of a of a major league franchise, so he's um, you think about the twins that lead that that are playing in the nineteen eighty seven World Series. We draft Puckett in the first round in eighty two, right? Um, he makes his de- debut in eighty four, and he's third in rookie of the year voting. We draft Kent Herbeck from Jefferson High School in Bloomington in the seventeenth round, mind you, in eighty one at first base. He's an all star by eighty two. Um, second in the MVP awards by 84. We trade um, in 82 for Tom Bernanski, who locks down right field for us. Gary Gaetti, we sign in 79. He comes up in 82, finishes fifth in rookie of the year voting. Dan Gladden, we traded for him um, in 87 for two minor leaguers. Bert 11, Frank Viola. Okay, the point is, before we get to the, um, is that the the twins of the late 70s and the early 80s we weren't having much success. Like there was a lot of middling teams and some really bad ones. And it was that front office that made these draft picks. And then um, finally, when Calvin Griffith sells the franchise to the poll ads um, and we bring in Andy McPhail and he kind of takes those draft picks that we had brought up in the early or the late seventies and the early eighties and puts the finishing touches on it. Um, And so a team that had been pretty much inconsequential in the American league West for all those years. I mean, the seventies weren't awful years. We had Tony Oliva, you know, we had Rod Carew. We had some hitting. We never had the pitching to put it all together, but by the mid eighties, this, this franchise is really starting to take shape. And so that 1987 team finishes 85 and 77, by the way, that was the lowest number of wins and the lowest winning percentage by any World Series champion until what team 19 years later?
1: Let's see. 19 years from then.
0: 2006 is
1: the year. 2006, that helps. yeah. Um, it might be a team that you don't like very much. Is so that the Cardinals.
0: Right. So the Cardinals finished, um, with 83 wins in 2006. And granted at that point there was a wild card. So there was an opportunity to get in kind of sure. through the back door. So, but this Twins yeah. team, they won the West. And by the way, I, that's I amazing looked,
1: if they won the West with 85 wins,
0: <laughs> they would have finished fifth in the East that year. You know? And so that's, that's pretty incredible. So that 1987, you know, world series team, and I was, um, almost seven at the time. And I, I, I I can't tell you that I remember it in great detail. I do remember watching a couple of games and being able to stay up past my my normal bedtime. Um pretty incredible series that the, the Twins take down the Cardinals 4-3. Any memories of that?
1: Um I I've definitely, you know, seen the the Game 6 comeback um several times. You know, that was sort of the big could keep the series going. Um with that rally. Um, not as many from the 87 one as the 91 one. I mean, that one obviously had some many very rich moments to it, but I was kind of in the same boat where I was seven at that time. Um, for the 87 one by 91, early nineties, like I've got a lot more memories from those world series, um, and started to, and those are some great world series too. The early nineties were, was a fabulous run. Um, some great world series too. So a few more memories from that one, but you know, I remember the the highlights from 87.
0: Yeah, well, it was the first World Series ever played in an indoor stadium at the Metrodome. And I think that was a decided advantage for the Twins. And one thing that people don't talk about often is that the, the Cardinals were missing um, their first baseman, Jack Clark, and their third baseman, Terry Pendleton. So they didn't play that entire series. And we were entirely healthy. Our two aces. So the, if you look at the Twins pitching staff that year, Tyler, it... We had um, Frank Viola, sweet music from Queens, New York, mm-hmm. and Burt Bylevin, who had come up as a twin in 69, played with us through 76, um, wanted too much money. Um, the Griffith family let him go because they were penny pinchers. And he didn't, but by the mid-80s, we signed him back. And so we had that one-two punch of Viola and Bilevin, Um and that was what made the difference. I mean, like those young players that I was talking about before that had, you know, Puckett and Herbeck and Gaetti, and then we trade for Gladden. Um, and so you, you, you were talking about the Milwaukee Brewers in the two thousands. And so you, you get a kind of a cluster of draft picks that work out in a three to five year period. You make a couple of key trades, you know, Viola comes up through the system um, drafted by the twins in 81. He won 112 games in eight years with us. And then, you know, but getting Burt by 11 probably makes the difference in that team getting to the World Series. I mean, granted, it had to have been a really fluky year in the West. Um, but we did knock off like the vaunted Detroit Tigers because they had yes. won 98 games that year in the ALCS and the St. Louis Cardinals. We were we were big underdogs in both. And one of the big interesting coach, the second baseman, Steve Lombardozzi, said, we're no longer the Twinkies. Um <laughs> after that win. So, I mean, it, you know, one of the few sports where we can say we actually punched our ticket that year.
1: Absolutely. And I I think you're right. I think that having a second top line starter like that was super critical. Once they got there, get into the playoffs. It gives you, gives you a much better shot if you've got that rather than big drop off from number one. So Bly was pretty key. And, you
0: know, I, think that people often group those 87 and 91 twins together tyler and they're like oh you know like it was like a sustained run that wasn't the case like because no. what do you remember about 91 with the Atlanta World Series um playing against the twins
1: that was that was just such a great world series and i think you know nobody wants to go like hit the 30 year mark without a championship and have that type of drought for their team but if you're gonna at least the championship gave like Tremendous memories I mean first you've got First you've got the somewhat comical Where you've got Herbeck getting away with Pulling Ron Gant's leg off the base Like might as well have been Ric Flair Setting somebody up for the figure four leg lock (laughs) He touched
0: his inner thigh That's all he did (laughs)
1: <laughs> like, a, like that was a, one of the crazier calls and all and all time of the World Series and just so silly plays type of thing. So you you know remember that from early in the series, uh, but then you get you know, the Game Six Kirby Puckett heroics. Well, the fact that you get Game Six and Seven at home is kind of just an awesome thing um, too for a series like that to close it out at home um, with a place that's clearly rocking um, indoors and super loud. Um, so I remember that piece as well. Um, game Six, like I said, you had the Puckett heroics the catch at the wall um and then obviously the home run which gives you one of the great uh, audio memories of all time especially from that era of the world series of jack buck and then we'll see you right back here tomorrow night um type of thing that that one that one's kind of the key one you remember and then and then on top of it all the, the cherry on top of the Sunday, you get the just epic game seven performance from jack morris um you know that that's that's quite a World Series <laughs> when you start to piece all that stuff together. Beyond just yeah. winning it, you got kind of a golden classic of all of World Series back then. And
0: as John Alexander, who was on one of the earlier podcasts, noted, like there was nobody up in the bullpen. You know, if that had that game had gone to an eleventh inning,
1: you know, he was so going Morris, back out.
0: Yeah, and I think Smoltz had been pulled in the ninth. By the way, interesting that Morris, of course, had pitched in Detroit for fourteen years. Before he was signed as a free agent on a one-year deal in two in 1991, and the opposing pitcher that night for the Braves, John Smoltz, grew up in Detroit. So, who do you suppose his boyhood hero was?
1: Going up against him,
0: yeah, yeah, and and he pitched up until I want to say, gosh, I can't remember, but he got pulled in either the eighth, maybe it was the ninth. Um, but it, you're right, an epic um, seven-game series and you know that twins team so in 88 after we had won the world series we f- had finished second in the AL i would think we were above 90 wins good team but in 89 and 90 we had losing seasons and in fact in 90 we were last um and so of course the 91 world series goes down as like the first time that two worst to first teams had mm-hmm. ever made it um which made it all the more dramatic and you know the the the, the twins pull it out um you know, and so Herbeck, Puckett, Gag, um, Gagney, and Gladden were returnees, but Chuck Knobloch, who we had drafted in '89, he had come up that year as a second baseman mm-hmm. He won he won rookie of the year. Um, and we had picked up Shane Mack from the Padres in '89 in the Rule 5 draft. Do you know what the Rule 5 draft is, by the way? I had to look that up.
1: I'd have to look it up. It's been a while since I talked about that one.
0: So, when non, if there are players like on the non, um, roster of the 40 major league players every year teams in like descending order of like, so the worst teams obviously get to draft first can pull players off of those other rosters. Got it. I had no idea. That's what happened. Yeah, but, that's so apparently crazy. in 1989, there's I hear Tyler. I don't understand baseball drafts. You've got the amateur draft you've got the right. baseball draft you've got the rule five draft, like you've got guys coming out of high school that are drafted, but then three years later they're drafted by a different team um, and then they've
1: never figured out the international aspect of it either, where like the n b a you just go draft somebody from anywhere and like you can't, you can't just do that in m l b it's like yeah i, the I don't u s draft and then there's who knows what happens in Latin America.
0: So we get Shane Mack in that Rule 5 draft in 89, a huge pickup. So he comes over and plays right field, kind of solidifies right field with Puckett and center and Gladden and left. You know, we signed Jack Morris. And then the DH, we we pick up Chili Davis from the California Angels um, at the time. And, you know, we lost Viola in 88, maybe it was an 88 or 89. We traded him to the Mets. And but the good thing was we got four guys for him. So when you trade an ace as a small market or a mid-market team, you better get something. Mm-hmm. And we, we got Kevin Tappany and Rick Aguilera. And, you know, Tappany had his best year as a twin in 91. He went 16 and 9. Um, and then Scott Erickson comes up. He was drafted in 89, and he was second in Cy Young Award um, voting in 91. And so, you know, I, I just kind of thinking about how do you build a champion, right? And so you've already got the pedigree by 91 with the te- the guys that have come back. But they – Completely redid the pitching staff. The pitching staff in '87. Not only did we only have two guys, and 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 um, Blyleven and Viola, um, but that I looked at the ERAs so of that bullpen, Tyler, and Jeff Reardon was our closer. His ERA was like 4.85. <laughs> there was like not one guy under four. I don't know how the hell that team won a World <laughs> Series, but the point is like they kind of remade themselves in '91, and you know, again, you get that core of guys. You brought up through the system. You get a couple of free agent signings with Jack Morris and um, Chili Davis. You make that shrewd move by picking up Shane Mack in the, in the rule five draft and Scott Erickson kind of comes along. And Rick Aguilera is your lockdown closer at that point who had come over in the Viola trade. And it's like, that was some really sound general managing in my opinion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, you know, that's the key, especially for the, the mid markets or small markets like that. If you think about the twins, think about the brewers and teams like that. Like, gotta get at least enough of a base up through your system. And then you've gotta make the right moves when it comes to the free agency or those trades like that. Like like you said, you're gonna trade away an ace, which you're gonna have to do, um, time to time. Like, gotta make sure you hit on that and get, get some value in return for that. Um, to keep it going, especially on the pitching side. I mean, that's been you know, so many teams that have, you know, come up and like, what boils down to do you have enough for a rotation type of thing? Like, I think about, you know, the Brewers were bopping there for a while, but they just never had the pitching to go with it. Um, Blue Jays in recent years, like, like now it's super, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them. Like, they've got, Super exciting core coming up when, when you're talking about position players in your lineup. Um Vlad Junior's obviously blown up already, Bichette, those type of guys, but then you look and it's like where where are the arms?
0: Jose Barrios.
1: Yes, now now it's <laughs> Barrios, but <laughs> um you figuring out that piece always seems to be the key element.
0: Well that and that speaks to what happens then you know, post 1991 with the twins. So we go through this and I, you know, this is from 1993 to 2000. we're talking about, so, you know, I'm in my, my, my junior high and high school years. And I just remember my dad in this era, like he was so, I mean, especially if you, you know, he had followed the twins as they had come over from Washington and, you know, those high years in the mid sixties, and then a couple of good years in the late sixties and the middling teams in the seventies and, the 80s, which up until 87, you know, had been really tough. And you you ride that mountain twice. And then you get to, you know, um, we finished fourth or fifth in the division from 1993 to 2000. So this is when we had moved to, like, the five-team divisions. Mm-hmm. Um, we won more than 71 games only one time and never got to 80. So... Uh, Andy McPhail, who was the longtime GM and the architect of the 87 and 91 teams, he leaves for the Cubs in 94. The director of scouting, Terry Ryan, takes over and, you know, Puckett retires because of glaucoma. Herbeck retires because of, you know, these nagging health injuries. And, you know, McPhail leaves. Ryan comes in and, you know, we're not contending for two, three years at that point. Um, we have a great second baseman in Knobloch who could still throw to first at that point. But um, <laughs> he has to, you know, the, the the poll ads forced him to give up Rick Aguilera, Scott Erickson, Mark Guthrie, Kevin Tappany. And he missed on a number of the prospects that he brought over. So if you think about this, like the Twins traded Nelson Cruz and Jose Barrios, and we got some prospects from Tampa Bay and from Toronto. Now, that we're not sure what that means. Right. What I'm saying is that he missed in his first, like in that, you know, in that first rollover. And so what happens is a two to three year rebuild becomes a seven or eight year rebuild. However, you know, I'll give him credit. He was early in his tenure. You start looking at the draft picks. So between McPhail in 90, 91 through 94, and then Terry Ryan after that, Brad Radke in 91, Tory Hunter in 93, um, AJ Prasinski and Corey Koski in 94, Doug Vinkavich in 95, Jack Jones in 96, Justin Morneau in 99. And then in 99, he also trades Aguilera for Kyle Loesch. He trades a minor leaguer to be named leader, later for Johan Santana. And by 2001, the Twins are winning 85 games on in, in Tom Kelly's final season. By the way, there is no way Tom Kelly lasts until 2001 after eight straight losing seasons and then one decent season. If he doesn't have those two rings on his finger. No oh, yeah. Way.
1: Yeah. You gotta, you gotta break through. Um, but especially when you got that chance. Um, cause like you said, it can go South pretty quickly. I mean, look at the Royals, like Royals finally popped through and one. And it like, Whoa, look at this team and look at this lineup. And then two years later, <laughs> like, it's like this could be, this team could go on a run and two years later, there's nothing left.
0: Yeah, you got, you know, those windows in sports, Tyler, like they can close pretty quickly. And that's why, like, you know, if Milwaukee keeps thinking that, you know, you've got four more years with Giannis. Well, you don't know what's going to happen around him. Like, you know, is Middleton going to keep performing to the level that he has Is holiday? Like, you know, you got to take advantage of the windows that, you you know, that you have while you have them. And the, the twins did in 87 and 91. And, you know, then we get through that long stretch of bad seasons and we get to the Ron Garden higher era. So Tom Kelly tire, retires. All these guys are coming up through the system. And, you know, in ninety, in 2002, which, by the way, was the last time that the Twins won a playoff series.
1: Yeah, it's hard to believe. It does speak to the – consist, like the, the pain in that does speak to the consistency of the Twins of being relevant and being up there and making the playoffs as many times as they had. Because like we talked about with the Brewers, it was like, it's kind of nice to be there. And then like 11 hurt. But other than that, it's like, eh. Get in the playoffs and it just feels like they're kind of overachieving, but like that's a different scenario. And you make it as many times as the Twins have, and and then proceed to not win a series. Um, all those times, that's there's a little more pain involved there.
0: Well, as we know, we have lost 18 straight games in the playoffs. And Ron Gardenhire, between 2002 and 10, he won the division six times, and yet in the playoffs in that era, he was six and 21. And you start looking at the names. You know, and so, like, I know that lineup, although there were some, you know, there were some names that came and, and went. And then, you know, of course, we, we draft uh, Maurer in 04, and, you know, he becomes Joe Maurer. But Johan Santana, Brad Radke, Scott Baker, Francisco Liriano, Joe Nathan, a couple of top-end hitters. You know, Maurer was a three-time batting champ, an MVP, one of the best hitting catchers of all time. Morneau, a, full, a four-time All-Star and an MVP. And year to year, like we brought in guys that could hit the ball and yet, you know, we'd face the Yankees and Yankee stadium and we're swept. We'd face the angels and we're knocked out in the ALCS. We faced the, we did beat Oakland once, but beyond that, like just, it was a team that never seemed to be able to get over the top.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, you know, some of that is you started to get into the air of some of those teams were really, really good. They were running up against you in the playoffs. So it was, <laughs> you know, like we've talked about, get to the playoffs in baseball, anything can happen. But at the same time, like once you started to get into the mid, you know, 2005 and on, you were starting to run into some pretty good teams um, that were sometimes loading up only for a year or two, but other times were a little more consistent, like the Yankees were there for a while. But um, those are some tough series. And then um, it was kind of a little bit of give and take there of the twins kept getting there because they always had at least one really good starter (laughs) you know a lot of times somebody saw young conversation johan stuff like that it's like you had guys that were that were in there you had frontline starters but when it's time for a playoff series it didn't really have the depth and the rotation there um so it was like there was enough to get there not enough to finish it off
0: Yeah. And I think like, you know, you look at the teams that, you know, we've been to the playoffs now a couple of times since then under the, um, latest era of the twins. And I keep going back to this, like back in, you know, and, and, and it takes some luck. Don't get me wrong. An 85 win team in in 1987 probably isn't enough in most years. And then things have to break your way as they did, you know, for the bucks in the playoffs this year with (laughs) all the injuries, but, and you guys met the moment, but, you know, adding Blylevin in 87 and adding Jack Morris in 91, and then 2019 comes around, you know, and we've got this, the, 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 the bus squad, right? We have Kepler and Rosario and Buxton and, and Polanco and Sano. And, um you know, we'd added Nelson Cruz. And these were guys that could hit the ball out of the park. And, we, you know, at the trade deadline that year, you know, and I remember thinking a lot about that this year at the trade deadline when we ended up giving up um a couple of other guys but mostly it was Cruz and Barrios and but in 19 when we won 101 games we didn't add an arm and we didn't we didn't add and, and granted maybe in the offseason prior to 19 like we didn't know we were going to be the team that we would become but i think these mid-market teams like the CC Sabathia edition, he goes 11 and 2 down the stretch for the Brewers in 08 um, you know, getting Blylevin back in 1985 or 6, leading to the 87 season. Signing Jack Morris. Like, when when you're a mid-market team, and, you know, the long, if you can condense this down to, like, my 30-second summary of the Twins over the last 35 years, it's like, you know, we build, it, we build up, we have a run. Then we have a rebuild. And then from that rebuild comes draft picks, and we build up, and then, you know, we make a couple of shrewd moves, and we have a run. And then, you know, we have to get rid of some of our pricey, for, you know, veterans. And then we, we we tank again for a while. The big question that I have for the Twins under Falvey is, like, they seem to think that 2021 is going to be an anomaly. And yet, I look at this and I'm like, well, we traded away our best pitcher. We have nobody that is, I mean, maybe is back next year. I don't know. Um, there's just, there's no arms There's no arms in the pen and there's no arms in the starting rotation. And we start looking at the teams that have had success in this franchise over the years. You've gotten an arm or two through your trades or through your drafting and you've developed them and then you've added people. And so far, this administration has not shown the willingness to go out there and spend money and to give up maybe some prize members of their farm system who we do have Mm
1: -hmm yeah I mean I would agree, I think like they've they've come across as you know new to Minnesota, but you know following them and then following them more closely since I moved here like they they have come across as kind of cheap <laughs> in recent years where like whether it's like retaining people, they could have kept when they've been maybe surprisingly good, like you said in nineteen, nobody really saw the twins being what they were, so why don't you take advantage of it and either go get somebody during the season and, and try to take a shot at it while you can. Um, who knows? But then also like letting some of the other people go too in the off seasons has been, has been interesting. But you're right. The, the concerns at this point, I think are certainly the bullpen looks like an absolute dumpster fire, um, at this point. And then, you know, again, you, you kind of need to, you kind of need the almost surefire stars to hit. And if you go back three or four years and what you would hope Sano and Buxton would have become, um, hasn't really quite panned out yet. Um, You don't want to give up too early either. I mean, like the baseball, you got to remember like 27 is like the prime age where people really start to work and really start to click. So you don't want to like throw Carlos Gomez out the window at 23. Yeah. Out (laughs) the window
0: to Milwaukee. Yes. That was, (laughs) that
1: was fun. He had a, you had a tear there for a little while um, type of thing. But, yeah, it's like the they've, they've been better maybe than we thought they would have been in, like, 19 because, like, with Buxton and Snow not really elevating to the level you thought they would, but they were still awfully good. And then um, I personally thought it, it hurt to see Rosario go, um, someone who was just loves playing baseball at this stage of, like, trying to get the baseball demographics, the audience being older, uh, having somebody like Rosario that fans loved and he just loves baseball and was outgoing, expressive, that type of thing. And quite productive. Like that, that one was kind of a loss to me. I wish he would have stuck around.
0: Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, in, I've talked about this in prior podcasts, but Buxton and Sano were supposed to be the, 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 the lottery tickets that we were going to yeah. cash in to get to the, playoffs and then to make a run they've underperformed a bit you know Buxton more because of injury and so no more more because he prefers striking out to um, being on base but (laughs) you know Kepler and Polanco and Rosario I think have outperformed expectations and so in some ways I think it's it's been kind of a wash in that way but I get it that the twins have been in like I uh, one of my friends made the point you know um, a month or two ago that we've been spending kind of in the mid market, like between Mm -hmm. 10 and 20, like, and that's fair. Sure. But my point is when and we didn't know in 19, we're going to be that close. And granted, I don't know how close we were. If we got swept by the Yankees and couldn't score a run, we did win 101 games, but you got to add a piece. Like, you know, you need a guy, a Jack Morris, Scott Erickson was second in Cy Young ward award voting in 1991, but he wasn't our ace, you know, It was Jack Morris and Jack Morris was, I mean, and he had a, you know, a Jack Morris season, like 15 and 12 and, you know, 240 innings and three point, but he was a guy. People respected him. And then you saw when it came clutch time, what he meant to this, to the franchise, which is why we brought home the title. And my point is, is like, I just think that if we get close again under, under, um, Falvey and his team, you've got to go after it when you're close because (laughs) if you don't, that cycle is going to run its course and then it's going to be two or three years minimum. And then if you miss on like if the Nelson Cruz and Barrios trades don't pan out and those prospects don't become guys that contribute that very easily becomes a half decade or more where you're in the, in the, um, in the cesspool.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think even for the looking at it from a short-term perspective, I think baseball is a little bit unique in like, really signals something to the team like what you do at the trade deadline more so than some of the other sports it's such a long season like you get into august <laughs> you get into august and like you get to that point and you've you've gone past the trade deadline now uh, like and especially now like the last couple of years like there's there's really no middle ground like you're either a buyer or a seller at this point everybody's making moves at the trade deadline it's either you're giving up or you're gonna go make a run at it, especially with having the multiple wildcard spots now where more teams can get into the playoffs. But, like, I think given the length of the season and where guys' heads are at by August, like, making a move, making at least some kind of move to show you're trying to go for it or do something from the front office perspective can actually make a bit of a difference. I mean, if you're the 2019 twins and you're getting to the dog days of summer and it's like, kinda of thought we were gonna get an arm. Everybody, everybody in the media thought we were going to be a player to go get an arm, and then you just don't get anything. It's like, oh, all right. Think <laughs> um, even just signaling that we're all in and we're going to go for this type of thing um, is is actually kind of important in baseball now, especially now with like, like I said, I think like the trade deadline. It's amazing that it's it's not a handful of teams that are buyers and sellers now. It's pretty much split down the middle, um, and everybody's doing something.
0: Well, then you end up, what happens is you end up pitching Devin Smeltzer and Randy Dobnack in Yankee Stadium.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not a recipe for success. Yeah.
0: It, what was interesting though is like, I, I was going back and what two of the things that, you know, as we're studying the different eras of baseball and really, you know, for us, we're looking at the eighties, nineties versus, you know, in, in the 2000s versus today. But like that 87 twins team in the AL, um, I think there were seven teams in their division at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah and um there was a 10 game difference between one and seven so although like we won 85 the worst team won 75 and so i think your point is correct that like now teams the philosophy is is that if you're not going all in you have to bottom out and yeah more so than it was and maybe that has made for you know like bad baseball because you've got you know, your front, it, it's, it's the inequity, you know, that maybe is representative of who we are as a country as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, and the other thing was this, this was the other interesting nugget that I like the guys, like you would, cause I was looking at a lot of like, okay, when were they drafted? When did they make their major league debut? Most of the good players that like made impact on good teams from what I could tell, especially in the late seventies and eighties, they were up in two or three years. And now it seems like it's usually more like three, four, and even five in some cases, Um, except for like the exceptional talents that maybe get streamlined a bit, but they really are protective, not only of, you know, what guys are doing in the majors and their rest days and their, you know, pitches count and how many innings they can throw, but even in how they they kind of work them through the minor league system seems to be much different than it was 30 to 40 years ago. Mm -hmm.
1: And yeah, it's interesting too. I, I agree on the kind of the, the inequity part in baseball, which leads to some bad baseball because you've just got teams that are just awful. But it's interesting that now, even like the last couple of years, you're starting to see the halves are even going into like this full scale, like the Cubs this year. Like, I mean, not terribly surprising, but at the same time for the Cubs to just be like, all right, we're tearing this whole thing down and we're burning it to the ground because we're not in it this year. Like that's a bit of a whoa. Like, (laughs) uh, and kind of speaks to that idea of like, it's, to turn it over rapidly now of either we're we're contending or we're not. And then that's going to make a big di- uh, difference in what we decided to do in July.
0: But a team like the Cubs, because they're in a big market with a huge fan base and following, right? Like they can turn, they can burn it down and you know, they they're going to need to hit on a few guys in the draft, but they're going to be able to bring a lot of guys in too. Oh yeah. They're going to
1: be major players in free agency.
0: And that's the big difference with like a team, like the twins or the brewers. Like if you burn it down, and this is my big worry about what we're and we didn't burn it down. We just kind of like, you know, we burned off the the, the porch and we and, and maybe the attic this year. You know, at the trade deadline, so it wasn't a fire sale. But you don't hit like you can't just go out there and sign guys because you got the money, right? Like we're not right. gonna like we're not gonna do that. So you're playing with fire. Sometimes fires in the attic, you know, burn the whole damn thing down. So we'll see. They they seem pretty convinced that, nope, it's going to be a one-year anomaly and we're going to be right back on track. But the long history of this franchise has been, like, at least it's been a three- or four-year rebuild. And when we haven't hit mm-hmm. on guys half decade or more. Right. You heard, you heard it here but, first,
1: Tyler. And I think the scary part of that, too, from a Twins perspective is, like, looking at this year as an anomaly, like you could just as easily say, like, 19 was an anomaly of how good they were. Like... <laughs> like didn't really see it coming. So like, Oh wow, we've we've got something here. And then the expectations were high and then they bottom out. Um, and now it's like, well, well, which one's the anomaly? Or is it actually somewhere is the truth in the middle there? And they're just not kind of going to be meddling for a bit.
0: That's what I would suspect. I, I mean, meddling or worse until like we can, um, replace, you know, some arms in the coffer. I just, the good teams have good pitchers. Seems like you, it's kind of like in, in, in the NFL, like um, good teams have good quarterbacks and you can figure out the receiver position and you can certainly figure out the the running back position. I mean, I'm not saying guys can't be difference makers at those positions, but, you know, I would say year in and year out. Although I do remember a year where Case Keenum and Blake Bortles and... Nick Foles were in the NFC and AFC championship games along with Tom Brady. (laughs) So (laughs) so I guess you have a nominally years too, where teams can, can kind of outperform expectations, but boy, man, we've Tyler, we've unpacked a lot tonight. I'm not sure there's much more to be said about baseball in Wisconsin and Minnesota.
1: I don't think so. No, but uh, it was fun as always.
0: Well, you guys have an exciting playoff run um, coming up in Milwaukee. So you want to, you want to take us out on that?
1: Sounds good. Thanks again for having me on. It's been good and putting up with a cheese head. Uh, But yeah, I think it's going to be exciting October and we'll, we'll see where the, see where the brewers go, but I've got this bad feeling that the Cardinals are going to, the Cardinals are going to do Cardinal things and spoil it for everybody. And the
0: brewers are going to do brewer things.
1: Yeah, That's also a possibility.
0: All right. Well, with that, um, thanks for listening everybody and stay safe out there.